0: Now, he's a length behind in second. And American Pharaoh kicks away. American Pharaoh has opened up a two-length lead as they come to the top of the stretch. And Frosted
1: has moved up into second. And they're into the stretch. And American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one-eighth of a mile to go. American Pharoah's got a two-length
0: lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole. And here it is! The 37-year wait is over! American Pharaoh is finally the one!
2: I don't know what they charge for courtside seats at the NBA Finals, but I know that generally speaking, those are expensive tickets. It's about as expensive uh, as tickets come in sports, those courtside right, NBA yeah. seats. Because, I mean, essentially, you could have a seat next to the bench, right? I mean, it, there's the bench, and then your seat is there.
1: Yeah, I listen. I listened to Adam Carolla's podcast, and a guy in there, Bald Brian, went with his father, and I don't think they sat courtside, but I think he said his individual tickets were like five hundred bucks a piece, and okay. that, that was like sticker price. Right.
2: So someone tweeted a picture. I said, I know where you are going with this. And it's, uh, did you see this picture? It's a guy. Did, it's a yeah. coach. It's sit, I think the Golden State coach, which mm-hmm. is Kerr, right. Yes. And then he's standing up in front of the bench. Then there's the bench, and there's like five, six people. Right. And they're all on their cell phones. Right. And whoever tweeted this was real critical like, oh, you paid this much money and you're on your phone. Well, my guess is, is well, maybe, you know, they were a commercial and they <laughs> maybe, wanted yeah, to maybe. tweet it. I mean, for everyone to be on it like that, I find it hard to believe that. Like, LeBron James was dribbling down and about to dunk it. But maybe. And then the next day, or maybe it was the day before, I heard about this story out of uh, Fenway Park in Boston where um, a lady was hit with a bat uh, in the throat. And I did hear this. Yeah. They had to stop play and kind of wheel her through the stadium To get her out of there the quickest. You know, like she was above the dugout and they got her onto the field and wheeled her through. That's how critical her condition was. And the first thing that came to mind was well, she must not have been paying attention. Was she another one of these people on her cell phone? Was she in a conversation? When I was a kid, actually, one of the first hockey games I was at uh, in the old auditorium. Uh my dad took me and we had good seats in the uh the golds. Okay. And there was uh four people a couple rows below us and it was two guys and two ladies and the ladies were talking the whole time and the one lady took a puck in the throat.
1: Did she really? Ooh.
2: Just it was a cold sound, you know, and um it wasn't good. She's I'm sure she ended up fine, but it was ooh bad. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the lady at the baseball game was following the play quite well. It was a ground ball. And her head went Followed right the ball. to follow the ball into the fielder's glove. The bat broke and a piece of it, which was essentially a flying sword, right. you know, caught her in... I think was at the throat.
1: She get cut or just kind of like oh yeah, badly. Okay,
2: yeah, badly. She was in critical condition. Wow, in the hospital for you know a few days. She's still in the hospital actually, Um, but last I heard, her condition has been upgraded to fair from critical.
1: Okay, don't get me wrong. I don't know if this is where you're going with this. One girl dies at a hockey game, They put the, changes nets up. the rules. Mm-hmm. What if this lady died? How would baseball have changed? You think it's nets Well, everywhere? this is
2: exactly where I was going with it, actually. Okay. You're right on. Um, Jeff Passan uh, has been tweeting about this and even linked a column he wrote 10 years ago Okay, about how he thought it was time for Major League Baseball to address this. Now, you can say, you know, there hasn't been nets for... 100 years of the game. Right. Uh, but the game of baseball, like football and basketball, is getting bigger, stronger, and faster all the time.
1: And people fairly regularly get hit with foul balls, right? I mean, some line drives. Yeah, I mean, foul
2: balls come fly. I mean, Not gotta critical a, condition. you got to but... be alert. Right. You, know? yeah. I mean, you could get hit. You could certainly. I mean, a coach was killed covering first base in a minor league game with a foul ball. Oh, wow. You know? Uh, and That's why the, the base coaches wear helmets now. Um, And it is something that uh, Major League Baseball is going to – the new commissioner said this. There's a variety of issues that we're going to take a fresh look at. You have to react strongly to an incident like this. But I think the best word for it is that we're going to reevaluate where we are on the topic, Uh, which seems fair, I think, to reevaluate it. Sure. Uh, He went on to say, I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that we have taken important steps in this area. So now he's getting a little defensive. But safety is much improved from where it was a few years ago. Spent a lot of time, effort, and money to make sure that our bats are safer and we have less of these incidents. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, because it could affect play, they also have to talk to the Major League Baseball Players Association with it. You know, for them, it might be changing the kind of bat that's used uh, to cut back on broken bats and things like that. It could be a net it probably has to be something, right? I
1: mean, more often the danger is the ball, right? I mean, it's kind of fluky. that I mean, I, bats do go into the crowd. Though. Guys just slip with their bats sometimes too. But, I mean, in general, yeah, I would think it would be a net of some sort. I mean, it, it hasn't hurt hockey, I don't think.
2: I don't think it's hurt hockey either. And what I was going to ask you is, would the presence of a net make you any more or less likely to go to a baseball game?
1: No, I mean, I, the reason I don't go to, I haven't been to a game isn't because I'm worried about getting killed or anything like that. Um There is the appeal of catching a foul foul ball, though. That's definitely a part of baseball games. Kids bring their gloves to the game. And I think the ball could still go go up and over the net plenty. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't happen all that often in hockey, but uh, baseball is a different animal. Yeah, I don't know. I I wouldn't have any issue with it. I imagine most people wouldn't either. Yeah, 2002
2: was when that poor girl died at the Blue Jackets game. So it's a long time ago now, and – I never really have felt like the nuts bothered me.
1: No. No, I never noticed them. I mean, they they don't show up really at all on TV and in person. You don't
2: I don't think it ruins anything. Well, now that that's settled, we can start the show. Okay. Uh it's season 5, episode 17, June 10th, 2015. John Wertheim, uh the executive editor and senior writer of Sports Illustrated will join us to talk about uh his time in France covering the uh Is it the French Open? Tennis? Yep, tennis. Serena Williams won her 20th major. Is she the best ever? Uh, We'll ask John what he thinks. Also, he wrote that cover story on Ronda Rousey a few weeks ago. We'll talk to him about that. And we'll talk to him about Sports Illustrated. I heard they're trying to uh, get on our turf and have started some podcasts. Really? So we'll have to find out what's up with that. Uh, We all know that's our... Landscape,
1: Sports Illustrated or podcast? Podcast. Okay.
2: So you know that we might have to tell them to back off, stop off, John, <laughs> or maybe we'll uh, ask if we could maybe join them. Yeah. More politely, uh, and also, um, Console Wars, a book that Don read uh, when we covered it the first time. I say that without joke this time, right? Uh, the first time we featured it as a, a hardcover. Uh, It's available in paperback now, and um, we have copies to give away. And on today's show, we have the author, Blake J. Harris, on to talk about video games and his book and working with Seth Rogen and documentary films and uh, those kinds of topics. We'll also update the rest of the book club. We'll end the show with one last thing. And right now, we'll do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm -hmm. Count of three One Alrighty, I'll take it off Two The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult Three I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback
0: <laughs> This is the funnest night ever <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep.
2: Now let's move on to other business Alright, we'll start off right away with uh, American Pharaoh. I cannot believe how much I enjoyed this sporting event. I mean, it was so cool after, you know, for both of us, it's the first time in our lifetime that a horse won yeah, a triple crown, true. but it was not even close to the first time that a horse was close, right? We No, seen and it always
1: seems to be that same trainer's horses. I just Bob read, Baffert like, was The white-haired trainer, yeah. guy,
2: yeah. say yeah. uh, This jockey, this is his third time okay. on a horse attempting a... The Triple Crown, including California Chrome next year. One thing that really surprised me, uh, only 90,000 people at the track, which is about 10,000 less than they had last year. Okay. And although it did really very well in the ratings, um, it didn't do as well as last year. So horse racing may have reached a point where we might have been wrong. Maybe they did need this. Maybe Maybe the allure of being that close wasn't enough anymore. Maybe the luster. Maybe fans felt like they'd been, quote-unquote, sucked in too many times. Maybe the people shouting about how it needs to be changed. It's too hard. Mm -hmm. That may have gotten through to people. It's just a beautiful day in New York. Uh, The weather certainly didn't keep people away. Um, And, you know, 10,000 people less there and uh, not as strong of a rating as just last year. Although still a good very good rating on TV. Um, but uh, I don't know. It was very exciting. I loved it. Did you watch it? What did you think?
1: I did watch it. Uh, I don't know why. Like I don't know what brought me to this. I guess the, the chance at history did. And that's the discussion we had last week. And before we came on, I kind of said that I posted a similar thought to Facebook and really got no traction. And I have people that are horse racing
2: friends and... Well, explain that thought. What, what okay, we last had, yeah. week
1: we discussed a little bit that actually winning the Triple Crown might be bad for horse racing. It's the it's the allure of chasing uh, 37 years worth of history that is the bigger thing. Now, next year, if you've got a horse that wins the first two legs, is it as exciting? Oh, it hasn't been a Triple Crown winner since last year.
2: Now, here's the thing. I wasn't sure. I, I was sort of on the fact that maybe if American Pharaoh pulled this off, horse racing would be in a spot of where do you go from here. But now after watching it and being as excited as I was about it, maybe next year I'm thinking, I want to see if he can do that again. Because now I want to see just how great American Pharaoh really is. Can- okay, because he'll still be running next year. No, he won't be in it. No, okay. I mean, only the three-year-olds run. Okay, right. But. It's a chance of perspective. I've now seen what a Triple Crown winning horse was. right? I may have seen video of Secretariat or Seattle okay, Slew, right. But I never got to live through a Triple Crown run like I did this year.
1: Secretariat's considered like the greatest horse of all time, right?
2: I think so, yeah.
1: Because I heard something like if Secretariat ran this, he would have blown American well, Farrell I th- away. I by, think
2: like, Secretariat won it by 31 lengths. Yeah, something ridiculous. So I don't know. So,
1: I mean, maybe, maybe like you said, maybe – that's what,
2: but that doesn't lessen it for me that he wasn't Secretariat, I mean, right, jeez,
1: no, that doesn't either, but as far as is it if a triple crown winner comes out next year, does that are you as excited,
2: yeah, I think so, yeah, I mean, there was three in the seventies, right, you know, uh, if there's three in this decade, I'm cool with that, um in the end, there's still been hundreds of years of horse racing, and there's. You know, very few of these horses sure, that have been able to do this.
1: I just don't know what it would take for horse racing to be popular. It is a rich, white people
2: Well, I guess you you know you have to define popular. Well, I mean like... Uh, They were able to draw 90,000 people to a Saturday event in New York, and they got a rating almost three times of the Stanley Cup game. Yeah, that's true too.
1: But I mean as far as, like you said, it declined. Like, I guess we'll have to see next year. Will it bump back up because of the... Yeah, it'll be
2: interesting to see what this effect this has on the sport now not surprisingly as people are looking to monetize this three hundred thousand dollars of winning bets were left behind the track and the thought is, is that most of these are two dollar tickets right that paid that are 50 uh, that are now selling on ebay uh for the 15 bucks. to 30 dollar yeah, range. Yeah. are you going to buy a ticket no 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 <laughs> I'm for, so for what? <laughs> i would have <laughs> I probably would not have gotten line either to collect my three dollars,
1: right, yeah, I think that's probably more I mean people probably found out that there is some opportunity to make a little bit of money, but I think more of it is like this ticket's worth a dollar fifty. I'm not standing in an hour line to get a dollar fifty.
2: supposedly his stud fees or stud rights were sold for around twenty million
1: that sounds right, yeah,
2: and he will uh one load of American Pharaoh <laughs> goes for about two hundred k Wow, so. He, there's talk he may race again. Somehow I doubt it. Yeah, for what? The owners want to race him again because technically they lose sort of ownership of him.
1: If they don't race him?
2: No, like he's going to be moving to Kentucky to bang other horses. Okay. And there's like an official like group that kind of does that. Does it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've heard that's not even a thing. Like you think he gets to go and bang horses? I think there's like a machine or a, a guy like in a stable that that's his job is to jerk off horses. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's <laughs> true or not. I, <laughs> but you think like, oh, you win this race, you get this great life. And I think
2: he gets a pretty damn good life. Oh, I'm sure. Horse wise, I mean, yeah, I'm sure
1: he's led a pretty sweet life up to this point. Yeah, too.
2: he's not in a chicken uh, mill or something. No, absolutely not. But uh, yeah, I loved it. I was. Fascinated, maybe is the word. By it, I was. You know what? It it it
1: drew me to. I think actually, of all of them, I think the Derby was the one I missed. But uh, I watched the second, watched the third, or no, maybe it was the other way around. I missed the second, like all the horses. I skipped the second one in the pouring and, uh, rain. And it, yeah, and I yeah. that's okay. I didn't see that one. Yeah. So I saw. It's he easy won to watch. That by a lot. It's It's yeah. easy to watch because I mean, you flip the TV on for ten minutes, you can catch the lead up to it you can catch the race and a little bit of discussion afterward and can put some money on it so
2: what a great call too huh the yeah. announcer did a great job capturing those guys the moment.
1: those guys love uh, some people don't like like Doc Emmerich because he's maybe too excitable or whatever like he's corny almost a little bit but I don't know I like guys that like what they're doing and this guy clearly likes what he's doing
2: alright American Pharaoh yeah. uh, United States Sports Royalty essentially <laughs> yeah uh, the NHL Finals Game Two was last, our Game Three was last night, and um, before we get to that, um, Game Two was right after the horse race we talked about last week. What a great lead in it would be, and sure enough, it was the highest rated Game Two in the history of the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, so certainly uh, a good lead in, and luckily they got to see a great game. Game One was not a good game. No, I don't remember. Did we? One was game. One was last Wednesday, I think. Right.
1: That sounds right. So we would have recorded our segment. The podcast before. Went, yeah, the podcast went up that night, but we recorded yeah. our segments before. Yeah, right. That was not a good. game Not at a all. good
2: game. A terribly played game by uh, Tampa, who scored in the first five minutes and then tried to kill a fifty-four minute power yeah, play. Yeah, basically. Was, yeah, it was totally boring. Uh, Chicago got that game. Game two was a great game. Uh, back and forth, lots of goals, excitement. Uh, Tampa Bay takes advantage of Patrick Sharp's aggressive work to get them a goal. Uh, He took a penalty, got out of the box, and immediately took another penalty. Um, And they got a goal, a slap shot goal. And then last night, uh, Chicago took a lead on a Brandon Saad goal in the third period, gave up the lead 13 seconds later, and then uh, Victor Hedman made a play that made Corey Crawford look very bad. Corey Crawford, well, how about this? It's 2-1 Tampa in the series. Three games in so far, I'll give you my best player in the series and worst player in the series. Best player in the series so far has been Victor Hedman, and the worst player in the series has been Corey Crawford. Uh, That's where I'm at Uh, three games in. How say you?
1: Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, I was going to come on here and drill about Victor Hedman, too. That guy is legit. If you were going to draft... We've talked about this with like Eichel and McDavid coming out. If you were going to draft the entire league over again, Victor Hedman's going to be really, really high on that list. He's, he's a really good player. Yeah,
2: and you know, we always always talk about forwards, obviously. Yeah. Think about teams that have won the Cup a lot recently. Okay, Chicago's got a few, right? And they have Duncan, Duncan Keith, right. superstar, okay? The Kings have won a few. Uh, they have Drew Doughty.
1: Yeah, I mean, he maybe more than all are forwards, right? right? Yeah,
2: yeah. He, uh, I don't think he did win the Conn Smythe last year. Justin Williams, I think, did. Yeah,
1: because he had all those game wins. But he should
2: have. Yeah, sure. Um, and now we're seeing it with Hadman.
1: Um, yeah, he would win the Conn Smythe Trophy right now, probably.
2: Yeah. So I mean, if you're a Sabres fan, you're hoping that Ristolainen, sure. or Pisic or even Zadorov yeah. yeah, uh, can be that guy someday, but. Wow, just really impressive hockey on both ends of the rank being played by Victor Hedman. Yeah,
1: the one thing I'll say, uh, not just about Hedman, but as a guy who's a big hockey fan, but I'm not gonna—I've never played it competitively or anything, so I don't know the intricacies of it at all. The one thing that impresses me about both of these teams is the way they get out of the defensive zone is awesome to watch. And maybe it's because I've been watching five years of the Sabers right. struggling to get out of the defensive zone. These guys go on the attack from their blue line out. It's awesome to watch if, if you're into hockey at all.
2: And one thing that maybe the Blackhawks have struggled with in this series is getting into the offensive zone uh, after they, like you said, right, impressively right. get out some of their, especially on the power play, their entries haven't been great. That's maybe one of the. It's been a really close series. You know, at two to one, every game's been a one goal game, right? I don't think. Uh, Tampa got an empty nutter in game two. No, no they didn't. I don't think so. No. so it's three one goal games. No overtime yet, but a really close and exciting after game one series. Game two and game three, as good as you can watch uh, at this time of the year. Uh, this is a great series. It's got it all, really. It's got stars in the front, it's got stars in the back, and both goalies. I'll give Bishop credit because it seemed like he gutted it out last night.
1: Yeah, I heard the the announcers at some point say that he looks confident out there. I thought he looked kind of, like, all nah, over. Man. I didn't like, see anything happy that feet, looked like, like
2: confidence. Yeah. Looked like he couldn't move from side to side or get up and down very well.
1: Do you he- agree that Crawford should have had the Callahan goal? I mean, that was a nasty shot, I thought.
2: Yeah, no, I don't. I Callahan's was a snipe.
1: Because I heard one of the one of the color guys or somebody said Crawford probably wants that one. But I think that's just a gut reaction to, like, A guy taking a shot that goes in. You know what I mean? Because so many hockey plays either have to deke the goalie out or bounce off a foot or something. He might want
2: it back, but I don't know if it's a soft goal. I thought he looked foolish on the the game-winning goal. I mean, why he was following Hedman to the point of his right leg was practically over the goal line. Hedman's not shooting from there.
1: That fifth or sixth defenseman, too, was out too long. Yeah, yeah. you can see why they don't play him much, Right. Right, yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, I mean, he just got, he just, he's been bad. And the second goal, the one that, you know, 13 seconds after they take the lead, he just can't find the puck, you know, doesn't cover it. Uh, They've beaten him a few times, like in scrums around the net that beat him in between him and the post. Uh, He just has not played well. I don't know.
1: No, I mean, for games, they're going to win it. They're going to need them. There haven't been big blowouts or anything, surprisingly with these. I mean, you would think if a goalie wasn't playing well against Chicago or wasn't playing well against the Lightning, that there'd be some massive scores. And maybe that but,
2: says how great guys like Duncan Keith and Victor Heman are. Right? Maybe, yeah. yeah. And the Blackhawks, you know, helped themselves, helped the Lightning quite a bit by missing a couple empty nets last yeah. night, especially in the first yeah. period. And uh, I didn't love the officiating last night, um, but not a factor so far. Uh, yeah,
1: I don't remember any glaringly bad calls. I'm not a fan of it's the playoff. I mean... These are the best players. Like They they need room a little bit. There were what, three calls all game, something like that. When the Lightning three got the
2: five-on-three, five I didn't love either call. The goaltender interference, okay. I, I don't mind them calling that on him because you can't be hitting him with your hands, but he's also pushed in there a little bit. And messed. there
1: is a way to call interference without calling a penalty.
2: Right. Um, and then also the one before it was, I guess, a roughing behind the play. I don't know. It's just weird what they decide to call. Because, like you say, for they the most totally part, they swallow the whistles. Right. Um, yet suddenly, there's this call made, and it's like, why? Well, just I just seen that and didn't look like a penalty to me. I'm
1: not saying I'm I'm seeing a lot of penalties that aren't called. There's just not a lot of penalties called in general. Maybe it's the way the teams play. They're not an overly either. Neither team is overly nasty or anything like that. And overall,
2: it hasn't been an issue. Now, no. on the other hand, in the NBA Finals. Oh, man, does it hurt the game, the way these guys officiate this. Uh, it's one-to-one. Um, game one was a great game. I watched quite a bit of it. Yeah, I didn't make it to the end, but I did watch quite a bit of it. And to see Cleveland not close it, get to overtime, and to lose Kyrie Irving the way they did. Yeah, I thought it was over. The you just think, yeah. oh, man, sweep. Right. And they dominated game, two for the most part. Need it. again need it. blow 11 11 point lead with three minutes left but end up uh, outlasting golden state no t first time ever that the nba finals have had overtime in game one and two
1: yeah i believe that
2: um so really entertaining basketball but man you think you know usually it's like stars they just get all the calls lebron doesn't get any I mean, the way he takes – and he's a big guy. And yeah, he has the it, ball. Right? He's just too big. And he has the ball a lot. Yeah. I mean, he has the ball, what, 75% of the game that Cleveland has it, it seems like now. Um, and I, I get you can't just blow the whistle every time. I'd hate that too. But in some of the clutch moments of game two, he just wasn't getting the whistles I thought he deserved.
1: That's the hardest thing, I think, to watch as a casual observer of basketball. Right, what is a foul, what Some guys – <clears throat> get absolutely drilled and it's not a call and then you get like a little slap on the wrist and that's a call like that
2: that's some of the weird ones that they call when you're not even looking at it like it happens behind the play (laughs) right all of a sudden the whistle blows and everyone's like looking around what happened but someone
1: important took a foul way away from the ball
2: it's been very entertaining basketball i'm excited that you got a chance to see some of it and uh that's one to one nhl is two to one i think we're gonna have a couple of long series here has your outlook on either of them changed since we talked last?
1: No. No. I mean, I picked the Lightning. Uh, maybe I don't have the advanced stats in front of me, but I bet you they favor Chicago. Uh, Chicago seems like they've had better stretches of hockey. Like you said, the first period in. Uh,
2: yeah, the first game period, I think night. they were like. Uh, Tampa was like a minus 31 course. Yeah, or something.
1: I mean, it was. Uh, I mean. Yeah. But, I mean, Tampa's got a 2-1 lead. I think they're as good a team. They were a better regular season team Advanced year, stats
2: so. aren't as big of a thing in a seven-game series, right? Because it's such a small sample size.
1: Yeah, probably not. And not I mean, you a...
2: throw away the Corsi and all that from last night is Tampa won the game. Sure, right. So, I mean, Chicago can brag about how great they were in advanced stats all they want. Now, it might be a predictor going through maybe, but... I don't know. The games yeah, are so Yeah, but you close. only need to win two more games. And, yeah. uh, and, and you probably only need to win them 2-1 to one maybe or 3-2. to Right, two. yeah, the way it's gone. Yeah. I,
1: that maybe is the most surprising thing to me is that – Low score. Not that they're close, but that they're kind of low.
2: No goals yet for Stamkos, Kane, or Taves. You got to figure that's going to change.
1: Yeah. Uh, a local guy, uh, the Advanced Stat Hockey guy, tweeted a picture of Sidney Crosby – or was it Taves? Either way, it was about how – you don't hear nationally about how Taves getting beat up for having a bad series. But if this was Crosby, you'd probably hear it. I'm not a huge Crosby guy, but I think that's probably fair. I bet you, you would hear how Crosby's not pulling his weight. And you're not hearing any of that from Taves. Or about that, about Taves. Or so Kane.
2: Or Stamkos. Yeah. None of them have a goal. And no. They're all huge stars in the league.
1: Stamkos ripped one off the post last night, didn't he? And he Kane that... looked,
2: I mean, unbelievable Yeah. last night.
1: Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they just look good. Maybe they're yeah. all passing the eyeball test. It's just a matter of time.
2: All right, last thing. Team USA won their first uh, World Cup soccer game 3-1 to one yesterday. Uh, England lost today, maybe the first upset of the tournament. These games are late, right? To France. I saw one on uh, TV last night. But... Well, they're in Canada. So, I oh, mean, really?
1: Yeah. Maybe it was a replay that I saw. It. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, the U.S. game was, I mean, it was the night game, but, I mean, it was started at 7, I think. Okay. There is absolutely no reason for Team USA to be wearing Neon, yellow socks. I didn't notice. I'm that. sorry, but is it for Our colors a are red, white, and blue. There's no for a cause in the World Cup. Yeah, I there's think no so. reason. I
1: didn't hear a cause. It's not like the breast cancer month for football. No, you don't right. do
2: that in the Super Bowl, and you don't do it in right. the World Cup. Right. Um, they need to get their kits in order. Um, but you only get to play three games in the round robin, right? I mean, it's a short tournament. Uh, they did get the win. A couple of bad uh, yellow cards called on them. Uh, not a surprise to me if FIFA would decide not to ref the U.S. games all that favorably, considering we just locked up all their leaders. <laughs> but uh, we'll see if that becomes a bigger thing. So far, you get a chance to see any of the World Cup yet?
1: No, I didn't. I saw, like I said, I was flipping through the dial and I saw a game was on last night, but it wasn't the U.S., so I didn't turn on to it.
2: Are you sure it was the U.S.? You just didn't know because they were wearing <laughs> yellow <laughs> No, socks? I just
1: saw it in the guide. I didn't actually even turn to the game. I think I was watching hockey at the time, or it was intermission. I was looking for something to flip to.
2: All right. That is three things for today. Uh, we're going to have Blake J. Harris later. We'll finish with one last thing. We'll take a break now and come back with the executive editor from Sports Illustrated, John Wertheim. Ah. 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 Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana And is a graduate of Yale University He made his sportscaster's debut Back in 2011 While promoting his book Scorecasting the hidden influences between how sports are played and games are won. Uh, he's a multi-time guy in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. It was even published in the Crime Fighting Version. He's an executive editor now at Sports Illustrated and is one of the most accomplished writers to ever appear on the show. He's making his 13th appearance A Warm Sportscasters. Welcome to John Wertheim. How are you doing, Mr. Wertheim? Well, I'm up to
0: 13. Is that
2: right? Yep, 13, a strong, strong hold on second place.
0: Lee Lee Jenkins still has the lead, though, right?
2: Yeah, Lee Jenkins is still in the lead. um, But you two have uh, distanced yourselves a bit. I think number three is our OG, which stands for Original Guest, Jeff Passan, who I think is at 9 or 10-ish, something like that. Oh, man. Yeah. So I... All right, we got to work on that. How are you? Good, I'm doing really good. I, uh... Experienced a Yale graduation. I was, I was kidding my brother. I said, you know, my graduation was three hours. Yours is three days. so I know, I went to. Who's the,
0: who's the guest for speaker this year?
2: You know, it was Joe Biden, and. um, Okay. Yeah, and he did great too. And he, you know, is I don't know what the right word to say is, but you know, I watched him, and he's got that reputation, and he played into it, just kind of yucking it up a bit at the beginning. He put on his his Top Gun looking glasses or whatever and played to the crowd and cracked some jokes. And and he got real serious and he talked about the tragedy with his wife and his daughter uh, way back in 1972. And he talked about how his son Bo had went to Syracuse and uh, his other son had went to Yale for law school uh, or maybe Harvard or maybe it was Yale. I don't know. uh, uh, One of the two. And how Bo had to work a lot harder. There wasn't as many doors open as there were for the Ivy League, uh, his Ivy League son, his other son. And he talked about how uh, Bo had climbed to uh, be one of the most loved politicians in the state of Delaware, and he talked so glowingly about him. Uh, I had no idea he was sick, and then just days later, I found out he had passed away, and it was so sad, and I just felt so bad for this guy. And I don't know, we were so... We're so hard on our politicians, for sure. Um, and we make everything so political, and, and uh, it was nice to see a human side to someone like uh, Joe Biden. So, okay. Well,
0: uh, so if, if this, was prior, this was prior to the sun passing away, though. Obviously.
2: Yeah, but very short. You know, wasn't it wasn't a week, maybe? Early? Oh, wow. We may, you know, um, what, the graduation was May 13th, so...
0: Okay, yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, yeah so... Um,
0: right, I'm not, uh, I'm not happy, though. Yeah. Not uh,
2: Yeah, but it was a, a great, uh, graduation. Who is it, you, who is the so speaker good. at your class day? Because the speaker is not at, you know, commencement at Yale. They speak on class day. Do you remember who yours was?
0: Jody Foster. Really? This, this was, like, at, uh, the height of, you know, the clowns the lamps came. I was, it was consider a real coup. No, she was great. She, you know, she pissed off the old timers, uh, but she was she was quite good. You can watch it on you. You know, someone said you can watch it on YouTube. It's pretty pretty good. Uh, pretty good dress.
2: Did you wear a goofy hat?
0: Uh, yeah, you know, you, you kind of have. So, is what all these traditions? You're, you're always like, at some level, you you feel a little self conscious playing along, but you also feel like you gotta be. There's a grudging reluctance to go along with it. You kind of don't want to be the guy who, like, thumbs his nose, but you also have to, you know, you don't want to suspend all irony. So, uh, yeah, it's always, it's always a balance.
2: Were you in the class day video? Uh, Did they do that? Uh, I'm dating myself. I'm not sure we, uh... That sort of video
0: was particularly prominent. It was, it was, you know... He can't tell uh... Tony with the
2: wrist strap variety. Yeah, so they, they have the, they have this, like, I guess it's a tradition, they have this class, the video they play, which was just after Biden spoke, it was almost like the main event, like, oh, here's going to be the class day video, it was like this 15 minute video, um, which was mostly about what should the video be about, like, that was kind of the gag that they played out, you know, it was like That's- these... Yale students trying to figure out how are we go- what are we going to make this video about and they were seeking advice and uh, there's all these like cameos and um, when the uh, I played the fight song uh, to bring you in as I always do. And it finished, and the next video that just started playing on YouTube uh, was the class day video. And when, I, when we were talking about, it, I looked down and saw it. Um, so I just queued this up. So here is the uh, here's a cameo. I'll play. I talked about this on the show last week. I didn't get a chance to play it. So for the listeners uh, last week, and for you, here's a cameo that the uh, Yale hockey graduates of 2015 made in the in the class day video. I hope you can hear it. You should be able to. You heard the fight song, okay. right? Yeah, if you heard the fight song, you hear this. Here you go. So, do you guys have any ideas for the class day video? Uh, yeah. Frankly, as a seminar participant, I think the class day video should represent the highest ideals of this great university, like diversity, adversity, opportunity cost, sunk costs. academics, sensitivity, free riding. And yeah, just to like dovetail off what Roof said, I think that we wouldn't want to stoop to a level of
1: lowbrow slapstick humor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you could hear that. Good for for some reason. It was, that. Yeah, it was, the joke was that uh, they they were gonna say you know what, what will we do this about and they they went to Ingles and all the hockey players were standing there and instead of you know talking like you'd expect the hockey players to do they all said it should be about the ideals of the university and they didn't want to um, uh, bow to any lowbrow humor and then the the final punchline was um, Anthony checking another guy into the boards you know. So it was, yeah, yeah. Anyway, people are vomiting over this. Yeah, people are vomiting over this at this point, I'm sure. But you just spent a few weeks in France um, for the French Open. I wanted to talk to you about that. A few things I want to ask you about it. First of all, real quickly, you mentioned in your uh, 50, 50 Things column Uh, about it about how quietly there was kind of a vote to expand the facilities that didn't pass and uh this is uh the smallest of the four majors maybe um uh, what was the how did you kind of perceive the health of the event when you were there um i know we perceive tennis in the united states as maybe being down um of course we have the serena still playing incredibly high she doesn't get enough uh credit for it or, or coverage i think sometimes but um, certainly there's no men's uh, competitors in the United States, so we perceive it as sort of being uh, in a tough spot. W- what did you see at the French Open in terms of uh, that specific event and its health in 2015?
0: Uh, no, I mean, the, the French Open's doing great. It, uh, they they need to expand because there are so many fans on the ground that it's getting tight. Uh, and that's sort of a uh, whole other story, whether they'll actually get that through i mean i was told you haven't seen bureaucracy since you've dealt with zoning uh zoning applications at paris huh. but uh no i mean that's that's the thing about tennis it's like stepping on a balloon you know down in country x but up in country y and um you know tennis certainly thriving in, in europe and a lot of a lot of sponsors ton of fans i think we'll see the same same thing at wimbledon in a few weeks uh you would you, if you went to the French Open, you would think this was uh, you know, a, a very healthy and robust sport, so much so that they need uh, you know, to double their size.
2: Hmm. That's good to hear. I mean, I, it surprises me then that they wouldn't um, approve it. But like you said, when bureaucracy gets involved, it can be uh, a lot of red tape, obviously. Uh, let's start with the women. And Serena, 20th Grand Slam, um, you even mentioned she maybe didn't even play her best tennis, battling a flu. Uh, I may have asked you this before, but I guess every time she builds uh, her resume, it becomes a more uh, relevant question. Is she the greatest tennis player of all time? I mean, is that what we're watching? She is the
0: greatest tennis player of all time. That is what we're watching. Um, I think it's, it's getting a little bit strained for people to argue otherwise. I mean... Put put any. I mean, part of it is just what you see with your own eyes, and she's just doing things and winning in a way that no one else did. But also, um, just in terms of you know, she's now won two more majors than Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. She won her first major in the '90s as a teenager. Here she is. She's almost 34, and she's still running the table. She wins in doubles. She wins on. I mean, it just this is her. This is her third French Open which is far away the sort of the the worst of her four
2: majors it's just um she's playing history right now yeah and we always talk about legacy and you know of course there's a lot of it going around about lebron and what this could mean to his legacy and uh with american Pharaoh and 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 that and uh, she's halfway to a uh, a grand slam uh here at this point uh, I think, right? Yeah, she won the Australian, right? She's halfway there. Yeah, yeah so yeah. if she were to win these next two, um, how, what what does that do? For, I mean, can she even build? I mean, it's to the point, like like you said, it's it's getting awkward to argue against her being the greatest, but what would a Grand Slam mean to her legacy? Yeah, I and mean, then, then we're talking about building for the next 50 years. Um, right. This is, I, mean, you know, I mean, it's interesting.
0: You know, Steffi Groff did this in 1988, and you grabs one of the other players you could you could easily make case for as great ever, but you know the, the Grand Slam is like it's it's one we saw this on the men's side. I mean, it's one one bad day at the office, or one day when your opponent's playing lights out, or one day of you know a couple bad bounces, or uh, a, a knee that gives you some fits, and you know all bets are off. I mean, it's it's not like golf where you can you can play crappy on a Thursday. At, make it up on Friday and make the cut and have a good weekend. I mean one one bad day and you're done. So as as it is, Serena's won the last three majors, you know, it's twenty one straight grand slam matches, but for her to do all four in the calendar year, um, you know, then we're just there then we're just building
2: Right. You know, I'm sure race could be part of what, you know, makes people not want to uh go that far with her sometimes it could be uh she can be sort of i don't know flaky is the right word um people don't like her father uh maybe aloof is a better word than flaky i I don't know what it is, but um she just isn't as endeared as I feel like she should be maybe you know i i think it's i think it's gotten a ton better both sort of
0: inside of tennis and in you know there's a sports public at large um you know i mean she's she's pretty complex and there's no you know people don't like lebron james and people don't like tom brady either i, mean, I think part of it is just you're in a competitive environment you're not gonna people root for the other teams and the other players not everyone's gonna like you i, I feel like she's really come a long way though i mean this right you used to see the word polarizing, and it used to be like she's a great player, but I don't like her. I mean, I feel like she's really made up a lot of ground, and I certainly you feel that within tennis. Um, this whole notion of like the Williams sisters against the world is kind of the 2005 storyline. I mean, now she's she's friends with other players. There was a big fancy black tie dinner um, during the during the French Open at the fancy Paris hotel, and. Serena was there and sort of stole the show and wore Carolyn Wozniak's dress. And um, I I think she's definitely much more accepted and much more comfortable in in the tennis culture.
2: We know that she'll be the big story when we get to Wimbledon, obviously. She's uh, on the women's side as she's uh, working towards trying to get the Grand Slam we mentioned. What are some other things on the women's side of the draw that between now uh, Wimbledon and arriving at the start of Wimbledon that you'll be uh, following as a tennis uh, scribe? On the women's side, you're talking? Yeah, we'll get to the men next.
0: Um, that's a good question. I mean, Petra Kvitova is your defending champion. Um, she's not what you would call an A-lister, and she, she tends to sort of play well and then disappear. Uh, I mean, I think from sort of it's almost rubbernecking, but I think everybody's kind of wondering what's going on with Jeannie Bouchard, who a year ago was this up-and-coming star and so marketable and obviously uh, attractive, and she's Canadian, and she's struggling just to win matches. I mean, this is this has become a a real disaster, and she reached the finals of Wimbledon last year. Now this year, she's got a losing record on the year. She lost the first round of the French Open. And there is almost this question of, you know, we've we've seen sophomore slumps, but is this player ever going to get back to what she was? Um, you know, Maria Sharapova is always interesting. Madison Keys, this this young American, especially on grass, um, is a player who's got a real chance. But as you say, uh, Serena's our, our top our top line item on the agenda.
2: Yeah, and we were really close to having the top line being the same on both sides. as... Is- Djokovic was up one set to zero, um, two sets away from being halfway through a Grand Slam himself uh, before Stan the Man won those three sets in a row and upset him. Uh, what? Look, let's get to that in a second. Let's start with Nadal because obviously when you get to uh, the French Open, you, that's the first thing you think of is uh, not necessarily... Um, will Nadal win, but by how much? Um, clearly this year it's been a different story. Uh, the demise of Nadal has been the big saying, uh, and the people who were uh, trying to hold that theory off were saying, well, just wait until until the French Open, and uh, it's not like he bombed there, but he didn't win it. Um, where do you stand with Nadal and the whole narrative of uh, uh, kind of the death of Nadal or whatever?
0: Yeah, I mean I was one of those people too, was sort of let's let's hold off until the French Open. Well now the French Open happened, Nadal did not win. As you say, he didn't he didn't bomb, but he also couldn't get a set off of Djokovic in the quarterfinals. And I think now the question is sort of where where is this guy and what's he gonna do to get back? And the the thing that's weird to me is that for years and years and years it was sort of the the body is gonna give out on him and you can't play such such physical violent tennis forever. Um, but this is really more mental than anything else. I mean, uh, you know, he, he, double faulted on match point. He sort of went away in the third set. You just, this energetic fighting guy is not there anymore. And in a way it kind of gives you encouragement. I mean, it's not like the guy's knee is just I mean, it's, it's confident you can, you can get that back, but it's really kind of jarring to see Nadal of all people. Um, sort of talking openly about how he lacks self-belief, and
2: it, it's um,
0: it's very strange to see him so vulnerable, I guess I'd say.
2: Yeah. Uh, that is interesting, though, that it's not the knee necessarily, you know, and, and then like you said, it is encouraging to think, well, you know, it's... It, you, you can get past the mental stuff, maybe, but I mean, if your knee goes, your knee's gone. That's it, right? I mean, like Bo Jackson, his hip, his hip went, so that was it. Yeah, exactly. No more Bo Jackson, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, we started to talk about Djokovic, and I, and I peeled back just because I had forgotten Nadal. But you wrote, you know, in your column, you know, he's still the undisputed number one, uh, but he doesn't have a a French Open title. You think he'll get one one day? Is that is that very important uh, to his legacy? at I feel generic, constantly asking about legacies. But um, when we're talking about a player as uh, as great as Djokovic has been for for quite a few years now, um, I think it's fair. Uh, does he need this tournament at some point?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, need need for what? But yeah, I know, I think so. He's yeah, I mean, what He could retire tomorrow and he'd be a hall of famer and like one of the all time greats. But yeah i mean um he's he's been pretty open about it too he's he's never won the french open he's won every other uh he's won every other major uh some of them multiple times and i think in in the sense of sort of quest he needs it i mean again he's been, you know you've got you've had players pete sanford I mean there have been t- plenty of players who haven't won a major and so be it i mean he's been very outspoken that he wants this this is sort of his uh this this is his great quest, especially having beaten Nadal. I mean, he, he beats Nadal, who'd beaten him the previous six times they would played in Paris. Everything's lining up great. Then he has this kind of quirky two-day match with Andy Murray, but he wins that. You sort of feel this destiny coming on. Wins the first set, and then he just got beat. I mean, this wasn't... No, nobody's saying, oh, he choked. You know, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't hit a ball once he got to the final. He just ran into a really hot player. Um, and so here we are, this guy is number one. He's won everything in sight. He's only lost three matches all year, but he still doesn't have that French open. And until he, until he gets it, it's also sort of hard to even consider him in this, in this greatest conversation, this greatest ever conversation everybody likes to have. Right. Um, you know, Nadal and Federer have won all four majors. Um, you know, Djokovic really needs to do that. if If he wants to get in the conversation. In you terms of best ever. Know,
2: you know, for the last few years now, we've talked about men's tennis in terms of like the big four. Um, with Murray being the fourth, and then uh, Djokovic, and Nadal, and um, Federer. Uh, this is two years in a row now that Warinka has... Is that how you say it? War, Warinka? Am I saying that right? Stan? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Close enough, right? Uh, i Stan. Yeah, Stan the man. It's uh, two years in a row with a major for him. Is he creeping into... Is he is he the next guy? Is he the is he the most serious uh, contender? If we're not talking about Djokovic or Nadal and and uh, obviously Federer is, is very very close to the end. Uh, Murray is going to be one of the favorites as we go to Wimbledon. He's got one there a few years ago. Now uh, is this the, is this the fifth guy? Is he is he even better than that maybe or um, or am I uh, overstating it a bit? Um, yeah I mean it's a good question. I mean the, the problem is he was thirty years old This't like a,
0: right not a kid young kid to keep right. an eye on Yeah. he's old, old joke if I told him that all um, but you know he's got two majors now which is the same uh, you know, mur has two majors also um, he's dangerous player nice late in his career that he um, has done this this sort of big winning. I think it's almost like the big three. I, I just wrote it. It's like Star Night Live, how they have uh, the cast and then they have a couple of featured players. So I, I think I think it's the big three, and then Murray and Stan as your uh, as your featured players. I, I mean, you know, he he can win. I don't think he's going to win Wimbledon, but I mean, he can win on hard courts. He can win on grass. But again, he's he's older than uh, he's older than all the guys we're talking about, except for Federer. So it, it's not like. Uh, this guy's got ten more years of of winning to
2: do. Right. Um, same thing. I asked you with the ladies uh, as we build towards Wimbledon here, and we're getting ready to go into the uh, into into that. What will you be following as a tennis scribe? What are the big uh, What are the big stories on the men's side? Um, that's a good question. I mean, there's nothing quite as obvious as Serena. I mean, obviously, how will Djokovic
0: respond to this? Um, to, to this sort of I wouldn't say shocking, but I would say surprising defeat in the French Open. Uh, I don't think he's going to play between now and Wimbledon, so how will he make that transition to grass? I mean, if, if Federer wins one more major, it's going to come on grass. Right. You know, he came within a few games last year. Um, sort of where, where is Nadal? Is this a swirling story? Andy Murray? I mean, how can Stan the man follow up this tremendous, uh, unexpected Grand Slam title? three weeks later i mean it's always weird in tennis that you have you have these four majors but they're hardly spaced you know it's not like they're spaced regularly so you'll go months and months and months without a big major and then here you've got you got two of them crammed into uh the span of six or seven weeks right um and then there's sort of the peripheral peripheral stories uh Grigor Dimitrov was a semifinalist last year and he the we is not like Bouchard, but you know, the the wheels have come off a little bit there. Um but again, I mean this has been ten years running now. It's really it's really about the big four. I mean you really um when you when you talk Ben's tennis, you tend not to go too far down in the rankings because there's so
2: much packed at the top. Right. Uh, The sports guests are here with John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated, executive editor. He's at John underscore Wertheim on Twitter. I was curious because you were in France on Saturday. Uh, Obviously, the day here uh, started with Serena winning. Uh, Does anyone care there about uh, the Triple Crown? Did you watch it live or was it like uh, see it in the morning? I mean, it's what, you're six hours ahead or something like that, right? So it was one in the morning when it started. Uh, What was your Um – yeah, I mean I, I cared because of Sports Illustrated and Well of course you did. When's it gonna be on right. the cover. Yeah,
0: fact, you know, whatever. I mean I, I cared, uh um but uh no, I mean you know you know, it, it gets it gets harder and harder these days because it's not just uh not just the internet and digital, but even, you know, you're sitting in a hotel and they get seen an international and um you know, I, I, again, I feel like an old man here. But, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there were stories that were happening in other countries that you wouldn't even hear about until you got home. I mean, now it, it's all sort of the the world is flat, as somebody once said. But, um, no, I don't think France was uh, setting an alarm clock for one in the morning to see if American pharaoh could do it.
2: So there wasn't a lot of buzz before the Djokovic match on Sunday about uh, American Fair Yeah,
0: exactly. Not not a ton of. Uh... <laughs> and, and it was funny. I mean, sort of certainly there was this theme of uh, you know horse racing as its triple crown this year. Tennis gets its quadruple crown, but
2: um,
0: no, I you know this, this was not the chatter. The, the Belmont Stakes was not the Sunday chatter of Paris.
2: Uh, you know, we had Steve Rishon on the show last week, and uh, we were talking to him about his piece that he wrote in the magazine a few weeks ago about the NHL overtimes. Right, sure, a- sure. A- and it was so great, and I was, I was telling him, like, you know, it felt poetic, sort of, the story. It, it had this sort of, like, poetry to it, the way he wrote it. I really loved it. And then I read the Tim Layden piece that went up after um, after the race on Saturday, and... I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to go on the podcast again this week and say that someone wrote something in Sports Illustrated that felt poetic to me, but, like, I was moved reading it. Uh, what was it like it's as really well? really
0: a poetry journal we're putting together. Yeah, it's like, oh, man. The writer's colony. writer's yeah. colony. Uh, no, I mean, I think that that Tim Lane piece was just a great – I mean, I read it on my phone when he filed it. And, uh, first of all, you – I mean, knowing Tim, you know, as, as I do, he – this is a piece that he's been waiting to write many times. Has been rewarded, you know, whatever it is, Eleven. six, eight times yeah, in the right. past. On the course of the first two, like even as recently as last year. He's been waiting to write this story, but that—that uh, that is a, um, a a clinic in deadline writing. That should be uh, that that piece should be handed out. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, he clearly had done the reporting in advance. You know, he would. I mean, it's obvious. He he done so much reporting in advance. Right. It wasn't like he turned on it. You know, it wasn't like he was he was looking at a blank uh, word file as soon as American Pharoah crossed the finish line. But he had prepared for this story, and then it happened,
2: and he was right there uh, ready to write it. It was um, that was that was a clinic in in deadline writing. And there's not a lot of gamers per se in the best American sports writing, but that really wasn't a gamer anyway. You know, I mean, that needs to be in there next year. I mean, I just thought that that was. Just killing it. I mean, killing it. And and it. There was a, a few really great pieces about it um, that I read over the weekend, but um, that one was really great. Before I let you go, what else is going on over at the old Sports Illustrated? You guys are finally rolling out some podcasts, I see. And uh, I was
0: gonna say, I, yeah, you, uh, you you waited twenty minutes to get to that. We finally <laughs> uh, we're, we've got some podcast momentum here. Yeah, I take a certain I take a certain amount of pride in that. It took a while, but I think we've got. Uh, I think we've got some infrastructure uh, i think we've got a nice
2: suite of podcasts ready to roll out um so uh look forward to that uh what else is uh what, what else is, is going on there for the summer what else are you guys um you know you killed it last summer with jenkins and the uh and the lebron thing i don't know if there's another story out there that maybe would be as huge as that but um Anything else you guys are working on for the summer? I mean, I know you're. Rolling yeah, I was, was
0: going to say in, in the middle of July. Uh, it's not
2: a whole lot. Del, very often. Matthew Delvedova yeah. is going to announce whether uh, <laughs> Cleveland. Um, no, I. You know,
0: honestly, uh, the the summer double. The sort of where they now issue is um it's in, in fun. the in the crosshairs now. I mean, yeah. clear, you know, honestly, I go to. Uh, you know, I I go to Wimbledon in whatever it is two weeks. So. Um, it's it's as much uh tennis is the summer Summer's always a lot about tennis for me but uh, look look for look for a number of things but look look for that summer double issue.
2: Did you enjoy? D- good one. Did you enjoy doing the Rousey piece? That was you, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah she was. Uh, you wish you wish they were all like you just get it, and um, you know I, I feel like some some athletes have gotten you know this all all this sort of media trading and this personality bleach and this blandness. When an athlete's, you know, authentic and outspoken and free spoken, it just makes for a better. I mean, I feel like everybody wins. The the audience wins most importantly. The athlete wins as selfishly. The journalist wins. Um, no, R- Ronda Rousey's great. She didn't say and didn't put her foot in her mouth when they think controversial. But she just asked a question, you get an answer, and um, to me, that that have just as a strategy is is so preferable. For everyone, then you know the team played hard. It's one game at a time. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun to work on, and uh, you know, I mean, I think I think they were happy. I think the I think the audience was happy. Uh, every everybody wins.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm a child of the '80s. Well, I think I am anyway. I mean, I was born in 1980. Some of my friends they say were children of the '90s. Uh, I, I kind of uh, associate with the '80s a little bit more. I, I don't know how it works. Um You, you were born in 1988? 80. So, I, you know, oh, 80. Okay. so I was from 0 to 10 in in the 80s or whatever yeah, okay. and then 11 okay. to whatever is left of your childhood in the 90s, but um so I'm a huge Hogan mark, you know, I was a huge Hulk Hogan guy as a kid and I've never been able to shake the wrestling thing. And over the last few years, I think a lot of people my age who are Hogan marks have kind of bled into the mainstream sports media and you know, sites like Grantland and um uh, bleacher report and uh, other places are covering wrestling more seriously i mean brock lesnar made his announcement um that he was staying with wwe uh not through lee jenkins in sports illustrated but on sports center um which was pretty, right? yeah which was interesting yeah. live on sports center with uh michelle uh michelle beetle i think was the one who was uh who did it she's a mark too uh, and I always wonder about Rousey if, she was, if she's the one. If when she's done with UFC, there's no one left to fight. Uh, she made an appearance at WrestleMania this year. I always wondered if. Uh, yeah, she, she she loves it. I mean, the she UFC won't win her. I don't think even.
0: You know, I don't, I don't think the UFC's in any uh, in any great hurry for her to to wrestle on the side. But when she's done. Yeah. It's funny though. I just I just did a I just went to Chicago and uh, went out with CM Punk. Oh yeah, who's, who's who's exactly the opposite? I mean, right. he killed. He killed WWE, and I, did, I. I mean, I'm not a fan. I I learned a ton. I mean, I didn't realize the working conditions and the financial structure. I mean, um, but he's sort of starting at the bottom of the heap in UFC. He isn't having a pony yet, but he's basically, you know, you know this. He
2: yeah, put
0: WWE to be a bottom of the barrel you
2: know, UFC fighter. Yeah, he's very much. Uh... Not looking to say very many nice things about uh, the world of wrestling right now. He's very much burnt out from uh, his years, and he makes right, a lot of right. great points about what is uh, bad about the business. But I mean, it's also coming from a guy who's made a lot of money in it as well. I mean, I don't know, uh, but yeah, it'll be. In- he uh, the thing in wrestling is well, people leave, but everyone comes back, right? I mean, even The Rock, who's this big movie star has made time to come back and Lesnar came back and, you know, everyone leaves at some point. Uh, Rowdy Piper maybe started it in the eighties when he left after WrestleMania three to do movies. He came back, you know, Hogan back and forth. Uh, but he's the one maybe that will never come back. Uh, he's, certainly talking to him now. I haven't, I know you have, but, uh, hearing him talk now, uh, it doesn't I, feel I like imagine he's he ever going to come gonna back. back. Yeah. I mean yeah. He, yeah. Who knows though? Uh, John Wertheim is the executive editor at Sports Illustrated, so he has no time to kibitz with me about professional wrestling. Uh, He is at John underscore Wertheim on Twitter, although he did humor me for a few minutes, so I appreciate that. That's why we love him so much. Um, And his uh, piece on the website, if you go to SI.com and click on tennis, uh, you can read one of my favorite reads after every major. He does uh, 50 things um about his time in paris and i'm sure you'll do it again with wimbledon and the u.s open at the end of the summer i always look forward to those we talked about his cover piece on ronda rousey which there's only a few issues back now um if you haven't checked that out i'm sure it's on the website now and um anything else
0: uh want to throw out there? all good
2: all good thank you so much you sick of this yet that was that 13 times
0: well, uh, I want Jenkins record. you want the record? It's like, it's like three in the
2: it's like three in the majors. Well, that's getting to Lee Jenkins right now. Thank you, Mr. Wertheim. Take care. All right, I want to thank John Wertheim, the executive editor and Senior Writer from Sports Illustrated for being on the podcast today. Always appreciate when uh, Mr. Wertheim comes on. Talk a little tennis, talk a little Sports Illustrated. Got to some Ronda Rousey in there as well. Book Club Book of the Month. We're busy this month with the Book Club. And uh, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to the author of one of our books today. And that book is Console Wars. Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that D- Defined a Generation by Blake J. Harris, the foreword written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Uh, yeah, that Seth Rogen and that Evan Goldberg. Uh, this is the second time we're featuring this book. Don and I talked about it a bit last week as well. We featured it in hard cover. Now we're featuring it in paperback. And when the documentary film comes out, I uh, will absolutely be featuring it again. Um, that reminds me, a quick sidebar. Um, because there will be a documentary film, and we'll feature that sort of like when we featured uh, the Red Army film by Gabe Polsky, uh, which was a documentary film. First time we used a film during the book club, uh, that film, Gabe's film, Red Army, is available on Blu-ray today. Um, so now it's available on Amazon, iTunes, and Blu-ray. So... uh Uh, A much wider release uh, for Red Army. Look back at our interview with Gabe. Check some of that out. An awesome film, and it is available on Blu-ray. Console Wars, Sega Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation by Blake J. Harris. A really great video game book. And I have copies uh, of this to give away. So we will do a contest. I'm not sure what, but we'll figure it out. Also, the game. Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers by John Pessa. Uh, 20 years ago, baseball risked self-destruction. Today, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Three men made it so. Hundreds of interviews, five years in the making. John Pessa's The Game is the book on baseball. Uh, I talked to uh, a pretty funny story. So I've been tweeting, uh, as I often do during the month, uh, about the books in the book club. And I've been tagging. Uh, John Pessa in the uh, in the tweets. Now, I don't know John. I've never talked to him. We've never had him on before. I've never met him. And uh, I went through the publisher, uh, as you often do with this, and requested a few copies of the book, and requested John's John's time and cooperation in them being part of the book club, and had no problems. And I get a DM uh, from John Pessa the other night, sort of saying, yeah, I would do the show, but uh, like, what is it, and why do you keep... <laughs> Uh, tweeting about my book so I sort of had to explain to him what the book club was and then I had been in touch with the publisher and that I had gotten a few copies of the book um, and that we were uh, plugging it and really looking forward to talking to him uh, and he said oh okay you know um, they didn't say anything to me but that's not crazy because we're kind of everywhere doing this right now so yes He's, uh, he's on board. And we'll interview him in a couple weeks, like uh, I interviewed Blake J. Harris uh, here the other day. So, one last time. Blu-ray, Red Army, uh, the documentary by Gabe Polsky about the 1980s uh, Russian hockey team that lost to USA in the Olympics. It's available on Blu- Blu-ray. Go purchase that. The game... Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers by John Pessa and Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk more about Console Wars uh, with Blake. our next guest is a writer and filmmaker based in new york city and is the author of console wars there's a book called book of the month last year and we're featuring it again this year as it was just released on paperback there's a documentary film in the works and uh this guy's making his second appearance on the podcast today or sportscasters welcome to blake harris what's going on blake
0: Thank you for having me back. Uh, that's an honor in itself. I
2: appreciate it. Yeah, no, we really appreciate. It. You know what? I was just about to tell you this. I said I should tell him on the air is we feature a book or two or three a month, and we've been doing this since 2011. And a lot of times, uh, we'll feature a book, and it will come out in paperback, like in this case. And we really like the author, really like the books. So we'll say, hey, you want to do this again? And most of the time, they say yes. And uh, it, it's it's mixed sometimes. Sometimes people are like. Eh, we did that already. It's tougher to get up as much interest. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes if it's just some book about a basketball team or something like that or a football book, people are pumped. But something about this book, uh, people feel, uh, I don't know if it's just straight up a nostalgia or if it's a love for video games or what it is, but as soon as we mention this book, uh people just get excited there's like have you found a more of a a more love affair ownership of this book with the readers than you might have expected going into it yeah i definitely have
0: and i think that you know you touched upon it definitely the nostalgia plays a huge part of it um you know my favorite part is throughout the past 4 years of writing the book and doing the documentary whenever i tell someone that I'm working on this project or start to tell them what it's about, they always cut me off to tell me about their memories. So it means so much to everyone personally. And everyone has these great memories and feelings associated with it. And I think also kind of like we were talking about last time, um, you know, there there are so few books in the video game industry that this book's, you know, the fact that it's published and the fact that it's been successful in a way sort of legitimizes or helps push the industry forward. So I think there's that aspect as well. But yeah, I, 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 very happily surprised by how much readers have loved the book and how often I've heard from people saying that they're reading it for the second or third time or that they read the book and now they're listening to the audio book. That's amazing. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it just seems like people just care about this one a little bit more. Now, when we had you on the first time last year, it was the first run of the book, uh, the hardcover, and uh, we really enjoyed that. Now, sometimes when the paperback comes out, uh, there's an extra chapter updates. I think in this case, it's a reprint though, right? It's just uh, the same book or is there I haven't gotten my copy yet, so I don't I apologize for that. but um... yeah, it's exactly the same exactly the same okay. Um, I thought I was actually starting to prepare additional material that I would uh
0: that I would like to be in some sort of ultimate edition or uh, future edition. and I think that we're gonna do something like that around the time of either the documentary coming out or the feature film coming out. but there's definitely some great stuff that I couldn't fit into the book either because it didn't fit narratively or honestly some things I didn't know. This this book, one of the nice things for me is that it's brought forward more stories from the people and and a part of me thinks it's a bummer that I wasn't able to get in but but the more curious part of me thinks that's great, at least I know this now. Maybe I can write an article about it or maybe it'll be in a future edition.
2: You know, one thing that's uh, interesting about books today is that People are reading them in a lot of different ways, and we talk to authors about this all the time. Like, obviously, people will go to Barnes and & Noble and pick up the hardcover. There's that traditional way. But there's also the iBooks now, and you mentioned audiobooks. Um, how do you think this book lends itself to just the different platforms? Do you think that this – because sometimes we'll have an author in here, and he's like, you know, I did the I did the the ebook thing, but I really wish I, I didn't because – it's just not it doesn't give the right experience. And now other times people are like, oh, this format was perfect for it or audiobooks was perfect for it or whatever. What about uh console wars and how it lends itself to the different formats that are involved with uh reading a book in, in the twenty first century?
0: Um, I think it's kind of a personal choice. So I I don't read ebooks. I because I feel like I I just really enjoy the tactile experience and it's almost like I like the idea that my eyes went through every line in a single book and that I have that book as a reminder or even as a trophy. And I found that when I read ebooks, I wasn't remembering as much. But it seems convenience-wise, like, that's no way that a lot of people enjoy it. But and in the case of Cosworth, I think the audio book seems to be the preferred way to consume it. And that's probably, I mean, one, it's because Fred Berman, who did the narration, did such an awesome job. But two, it's partially because I wrote the book almost like, it were a movie or to be sort of read like with, what do you think, be in the room and in the scene with these people. And I think that having it narrated that way has been really successful and people really respond well to that.
2: And I'm sure that has made transitioning to a documentary uh, all that much easier and more natural, right? Um, Since the way the book is written is... Uh, almost feels like a screenplay already. Ha- have you found in working on the documentary that it's been a pretty smooth transition?
0: You know, that's an interesting question because yes and no. I mean, I definitely always had, having a screenwriting background and, and loving film, that, that was always in the back of my mind and even as I was doing stuff or listening to the stories from these people, I thought, oh, that'll work well for a documentary or that would work well for the book or what have you. But it's really strange to condense the, the book is 550 plus pages and the right. documentary is 90 minutes as you know, and a feature film will be around 90 minutes or two hours. And it's just, it's hard to, to, to only hit sort of the bigger beats when I know and care so much about the story that, you know, to tell, I guess what I'm saying is that when you're doing a, a feature film or documentary, it inherently has to be a little bit more, superficial, not in a negative way, but it has to really just touch upon the bigger subject. And so much of what I enjoyed about the book console wars is really getting into the minutia of the context. So that has been sort of an interesting challenge though, because there is kind of like the structure set up in the book with like, you know, the big moments are the release of the Genesis, the release of the super Nintendo, Tom joining Sega, the creation of Sonic, uh, the Senate subcommittee hearings, you know, that definitely helps set up things much easier for documentary or or for any form of storytelling than I imagine most cases or most documentaries where you kind of have to find the story in the edit.
2: I can just kind of picture you like in an editing room or or sitting in front of a a computer saying, I can't believe I got to let this part of the book go and not be a part of the movie.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, I guess, um, in in, uh, in one way I, I can't imagine what that would be like for a filmmaker doing it where they don't have a book because at least I can think alright I'm cutting this from the documentary but at least you know if you're very interested in the story you can, you can read more and learn more so at least I have it out there uh, but but on the other hand I do know so much of it that it is sad to, to see that stuff go But but at the same time you know if, if I had the choice of doing it a 90-minute documentary or a four-hour one, it's definitely better to do it 90 minutes. There's a reason to things around that length. Um, you know, it needs to be accessible and it needs to be lean and keep moving. And one thing that I'm really proud of that we've been able to do with the documentary is that uh, me and the co- my co-director Jonah Tullis, um, we it was very important to us that we didn't have a narrator and that we didn't have outside voices like historians or or people who weren't actually living through the moments, And so far, we've been able to craft a cut that's told completely in the voice of the characters themselves, and that's really how we wanted it, and and, and I think it's really nice to, to see it through their eyes.
2: When you prepared to do the documentary, did you think in your head at all, like, okay, I've seen these books come into movies and I don't want it to end up like that, or I've seen these books... Go into movies, and that is more like what I want. Um, did did seeing other books morph into movies uh, change or create or develop the way you develop this project?
0: Um, another good question. I think that the fact that the documentary exists is kind of because so few so few books that have been adapted into feature films have had that documentary step in cases where it's a true story. And, and those were things that I craved. Like, I love the movie Moneyball. I love the book Moneyball. I love Social Network, and I love Ben Mesrick's book, The and of the Billionaires. But in both cases and other similar situations, I would have loved to see a documentary. And, and you know, as good as Jesse Eisenberg was, as Mark Zuckerberg, I would have liked to see Zuckerberg himself or The the Winkle Um And so there, there aren't a ton of nonfiction books that are adapted into a documentary format because usually a documentary will get adapted into a feature film or a book will, but it's rarely both. So I think that the fact that that doesn't happen um, and the fact that I wanted it was part of why we even did it, um, if that answers the question.
2: Yeah, you know, and and I think that maybe in the past uh, authors have been more likely to turn their their books into films as opposed to documentaries, but I wonder if that's going to change because it really seems like we're entering sort of a golden age of documentaries in a sense with all of the ways that content can be consumed now, whether it's Netflix or you know HBO Go, uh, Showtime. Um, I mean ESPN's Thirty for Thirty series. It just seems like there's so many more places for these films to be and. My brother and I, we love documentaries, and it just seems like as every month passes, uh, the accessibility of a documentary is, is 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 greater. The example I always think of is uh, every year I have – I always look to see what the nominated – people do this with Best Picture, what films are nominated in the Oscars, and then they watch them all. Well, I always used to do that with documentaries. And I remember the one year uh, there was a football movie uh, that won. I don't know why I can't think of the uh, name of undefeated, it. Undefeated, right. right. And yeah. I could not watch this movie. You know, it didn't screen in Buffalo, so I couldn't go to a theater and watch it. You know, it was just nowhere for months and months and months, and then finally I think Walmart actually released it on D V D and I went and picked it up. But things like that are happening less and less. There's just so many more opportunities. Uh, and this turned into a really long question, but um, do you do you get no, that sense you're as totally well?
0: Right. Like not only were documentaries, say, even as recently as five years ago, were they harder to to find that distribution for, but I also think to some degree there was a stigma of it, not being nerdy, but it was like, it wasn't as much a mainstream form of entertainment, but um, the success of Netflix with documentaries and especially the ESPN 30 for 30 series has, yeah. have done a great job of making it where, you know, people are more likely to just want to throw on a documentary and see where it goes. And um, so I do think that we're kind of headed towards a golden age. And I, and I will say that um, I would hope that kind of like more people would follow my lead or at least be in a similar situation where I was doing these interviews anyway for the book. And then it was definitely a little more difficult to, to deal with hiring a camera crew and, you know, arranging for these, spending days with these people and all the travel but but it helped me make a better book and then at the end we now had all this great material so it was like killing two birds with one point one stone you know like putting in a little bit extra more work at that point just to have end up with these two great ways of telling the story
2: do you guys have a distribution plan in place for when the film is finished already or is that something that you work on after or how does that work exactly i'm not even sure Um, we don't have anything in place. We have, so Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg,
0: um, who are also doing the feature film version of the book. They are producing the documentary as is Scott Rudin, who's also involved with the feature film. Um, the feature film will be with Sony Pictures, but, uh, we have nothing in place for the documentary at this time and it will ultimately be up to Scott, um, Seth and Evan. Okay. So we'll see, but if I have to defer to any people, those are the three people um, right, who I right. have to defer
2: to. So basically, you get the pro- project finished, and then you you take meetings, right? And you go to this place, and you go to Netflix, and you go here, and, and you see what's up. Is that basically how it works? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, in an ideal scenario, I mean, maybe you screen it at a film festival, and and you get
2: oh, and some of my all those people there. together. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I mean, it, 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 I I can understand why it would be valuable for some filmmakers um, to have distribution in place ahead of time. A lot of times just because of the fact that you have a budget for the film and it can help pay for that. Uh, But in this case, we've been lucky enough not to need that. And it's definitely, as a filmmaker, been great not to have to work on any specific deadline um, in that regard and to kind of just make sure that we get the best story possible.
2: Uh, How important has having people like Evan and Seth involved been to the whole process in general?
0: Um, I mean, you could probably answer that as well or better than me. I think that this is my first book and there's a lot of people who write first books that are, that are good, but it's still hard to get the word out and, and having the support of Stephen and Evan and having them write the forward was huge in terms of getting the word out. But that's probably how you initially heard of the book or, you know, I guess I would, I would throw the question at you. How, how much do you think it has made a difference in, uh, in, in marketing purposes for Console Wars or in the way that people think
2: of the book. Well, I'm positive it, it has helped because uh, those guys have a following, right? I mean, when they put their name on something, there's a bunch of people who will respond to that no matter what. You know, right. like, uh, oh, hey, those guys are saying this. All right, well, I'm a fan of that, so let's see what that is, but uh, personally, I mean, I, I think there's uh, there was a, 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 a Canadian music blogger that just I follow on Twitter because we like both like the Canadian band moist um and she posted a link I believe to the book and that's how I found out about it initially and I thought such a cool book and then that's how things started i don't I don't know that uh, that that would have happened or not with with Seth because I don't know if that's I, I don't know how far back I can trace it like as long as she was gonna read it one way or another I would have found out because that's how I did but maybe she only read it because of those guys that I don't know but, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. And, yeah.
0: and Either way, I guess I, I don't care that much because I'm glad that at least it's getting into people's hands and it doesn't ensure that they would like it just because it's something that Seth and Evan have put their names on. But at the same time, it definitely gets out to more people. And, you know, it kind of in a way, part of the desire to, to reach out to them or to try to find someone, um, to produce a documentary and a feature film with that was of the caliber of themselves was like looking at what Sega did during this time period. So I almost think of it like in the way that Joe Montana had his name on Joe Montana Sports Talk Football. And, you know, any of those games, whether it's John Madden or Tiger Junior Baseball, the games themselves have to be good or, you know, they'll generally succeed or fail on the quality of the game, but it will help get the word out and, and help, you know, influence a little bit the way you perceive it potentially. Um, so it's something that could help. Uh, it's something that almost definitely helps, um, but I like to think that at the end of the day, the book still has to be good.
2: Yeah. You know, this is something I was I was thinking about, too. I was looking around on your website, com, and uh, I was looking at the appearances that you've done, and some of them, whether it's TV, uh, radio, um, podcasts, all kinds of different things, and getting the book out. And I was thinking about some other interviews we've done, like uh, Jeff Proman uh, did a book, uh, Showtime, about the Lakers, and we had him at the... He was everywhere for a bit, uh, promoting that, which was great. Uh, Jeff, he the guy who did uh, the
0: How the Bad Guys won?
2: Yes. Yep, okay. same yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I like that book. great author. Uh, really good yeah. books, too. Uh, Sweetness, his book on Walter Payton, is maybe the best sports book I've, I've read uh, in doing this the last few years, but um, he was at so many places that I got really paranoid that I wouldn't be able to ask him uh, anything that would he would be still excited about answering. I, but the good thing was I got a pretty good idea of what those things would be. I figured he'd be sick of uh, bird versus magic, uh, aid stuff with magic. Like they're, they're real easy to pick out. Um, we had Anthony Kumia on uh, a few months ago and, and going into that, I said, I don't want to spend 15 minutes or even five on why he got <laughs> fired or those tweets. Cause he's done that interview so many times. Um, and I was thinking about you, like, now that you're a year into this project or more uh, promoting it, I mean, um, is there a thing that when you sit down to talk about this book that comes up over and over, is there a part of this that you're you're sort of sick of? And the opposite of that, is there a part of this, something in this book that you wanted to talk about more when you do this, but yet somehow it just never comes up?
0: Um, well, to answer your first question, if there's anything I'm sick of, no, and and that might sound like a, a stock answer, but it's not, because you almost think about it, like, you know, this is my first book, this means the world, this Sega this Nintendo Battle meant the world to me growing up, and it's obviously meant an enormous amount to me spending the past four years doing this, so it almost is like a love story for me, and, and I feel like if you ask a married couple, you know, if you guys ever get sick of talking about how you met? Uh, I mean, maybe some people would, but I think that's a story that people like telling over and over and over, because it just reminds them that they tell it, like, you know, how unlikely and how Pleasant. It all turned out. Um, so I'm very fulfilling. There's there's nothing I don't really like talking about, and I especially love talking about the writing process or the or how it all came together. Um, in terms of I don't, nothing comes to mind that I haven't been asked, but uh, feel free to ask me anything. Um, <laughs> did, did you have anything? Did you have anything? No, I was, just, I,
2: guess? I was just I was thinking like uh, you know I was thinking about like these like you know when you write a book like this there's so many different like i've seen oh this is something like you had these you've you've had excerpts of the the book printed and um and sort of something with Perlman, too like he had an excerpt of his sweetness up in asai that got a really big blowback and i i asked him you know would you have printed something different and he's like yeah maybe you know i don't know but I was thinking about that, like when you're when you're picking something out of this book, uh, this book which is made up of all these different anecdotes or stories or chapters, and and when you wrote that chapter, you probably will think back, like, oh, I remember when I wrote about uh, Madden, uh, th- I was at this point in my life and this happened. It's like these reflections as the author, like all those parts, <laughs> right. like mean something to you. And I, I guess I was just thinking, like, did any of those like times or those anecdotes kind of just get lost in the shuffle or left behind that? You wish maybe would come back more because they maybe make you feel a certain way or something like that. I think this is a question that I really want. I'm just not quite talented enough to phrase properly. I guess maybe. <laughs> no, no. I think that you're getting it. Well, for, for one,
0: I just it's, it's nice to me that I can open the book like right now. I'm opening the book to a random page 115, and I, and I remember what I like, where I was that day when I wrote it, probably what I was eating, or I usually keep the TV on, what I was watching. Um, so in a way, it's nice that it's nice that everything brings back memories for me. Um, In that respect, it probably always will. Um, Like as for the excerpts, um, there were, there were a few places that published excerpts and it was kind of interesting how it happened. Like Rantland was really important to me because I, I love that website. And uh, I spoke to their editor and he, uh, you know, a natural fit would have been the first chapter, but um, he thought that it was too like in the moment, which is kind of what the story was. And he wanted something that, would better touch upon the nostalgia of that era. So we ended up going with the Nintendo chapter. Um, And then there was a few other places where it was like similar situations where I either had to rewrite parts of it or or tailor it for an audience. But, you know, I guess I didn't feel like there was one shot and I needed to to throw the exact right pitch. Um, I was trying to think, like, in terms of stuff I haven't been asked about or haven't really talked about, um, the, the last week of writing the book was very, very insane. Because we were filming the documentary throughout a lot of the book writing period, um, I I didn't get to write as much of the book as I had wanted to. You know, I didn't get to write, didn't didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted to on the book because I was doing the documentary and Harper Collins and my editor, Mark Tate, were very understanding or as much as I would reasonably expect them to be. But there was a hard deadline for my draft and it was December 17th and on December 10th, I had only about 80% of the book, or 85%. Oh. So I wrote the last 100 pages or so <laughs> in, like, a week. Um, and it turned out that I ended up having time to go over it and kind of fix things that maybe felt rushed. But, uh, you know, and, and it, like, these were all the chapters I had planned, so it's not like I cut things or took <laughs> shortcuts in that regard. But that was probably the craziest week of my life. Um, and it was also it happened to be my birthday, which I, so I felt like I didn't have a birthday that year. In <laughs> the it, holiday just, season, it was it was just really insane. Um, that that was something that I will never forget. And my fiance and I were talking the other day, and I asked if I guess we're talking about if either of us have ever seen so depressed or or stressed that we were worried about each other and she said that she never had been about me except for that last week she was like legitimately worried about how it would turn out but like, it turned out well
2: yeah that, that feels very like college to me in a way you know like we all go through that in college like this because you know some did you feel like you wrote that some of the best stuff you wrote was during that time like sometimes we write the best when we're up against <laughs> yeah. the deadline in that way
0: yeah, no, I guess that's the part of it that I find surprising, and now that I'm not in it, really nice, is that I I felt like the quality was as good or better than everything else. Yeah. Probably so much so that I questioned the, you know, in future writing if I should do it on such a short deadline, at least for a draft, because, you know, I, I, like a typical chapter, I would say that my schedule was like I wake up at, um, I go to sleep very late, but I would wake up at, like, um, eight or nine, sometime in the middle of Mike and Mike, watch the rest of Mike and Mike, go get nice coffee, and then spend the next 10 to 14 hours writing and not writing and, you know, taking good breaks and get it, basically taking walks. Um, so to not have that luxury of, like, doing it at my own pace that last week was interesting. Um, and I guess I was also just proud that I was able to do it.
2: <laughs> the sports guest are here with uh, Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars. few minutes left uh, we love this book uh, we're featuring it for the second time it's a great read it's out on paperback now of course you can still get the hardcover version there's an awesome uh audiobooks version and uh, of course ebooks as well um we talked about this real quickly last time uh the the console the present day console wars I always I uh, always talk about how I loved when I finally got a uh, the Nintendo Modern day Game Boy, what's it called?
0: Oh, the three D S or the Yeah, 3DS? yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Uh I love this thing. I play it all the time. Then I got an iPhone and <laughs> I never played it anymore. I was always playing games on my iPhone and of course there's uh PS four and Xbox One. Uh what are your thoughts on the modern day uh console wars and uh what do you prefer? What do you like? What 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 uh I know you don't have as much time I'm sure as you would like to play uh, video games. None of us have as much time as we did when, <laughs> you know, the 8-bit Nintendo was out and we would play Mario Brothers for 12 hours on a Saturday, but uh, right. what are your thoughts about the modern-day console wars?
0: Um, so, I, you know, sensibility-wise, Nintendo is still my perfect speed. I really like platformers and kind of, I guess, more of the family-friendly type games. Um, you know, looking back on it, I think that I just really failed to get into the first-person shooter around 95 to, like, 2000 or so, and then that kind of always Same made me feel, like, left out, and mm-hmm. like, you know, so when everyone was playing Halo in college, I would, I would watch, but I really sucked at it. Um, so maybe that's part of the reason why Nintendo and, and the Wii U is what I have. It feels like more of my speed. Um, but that, one thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, the console wars that I wrote about with Sega Nintendo in the 16-bit era, but, but there's always a battle um, with each generation. But this one seems very hard to differentiate between Microsoft and Sony. And, you know, obviously, so I think Sony has sold 22 million units of the PS4 and they seem to be in the lead. But at least back with Sega and Nintendo, I love that Sega seemed to stand for one thing and Nintendo stood for the other and neither was right or wrong, but they were like, this you know, in the same way the Republicans and Democrats, this is what they stand for, this is their platform, this is what it means to support this party. And And I wish I had a clearer sense of what that means nowadays for Sony and Microsoft, though I understand why it can't—it's it's harder to have those differentiators because it's—it's so, it's so costly to be in this arms race, and it's not worth a third party being exclusive with one company over another in most cases. But I kind of miss that because you know I grew up such a major sports fan, and and I love rivalries like Yankees, Red Sox, whatever. I think that's exciting, and, and it's sort of lacking that excitement.
2: Hmm. What are your thoughts on Nintendo and apps? It seems like they're just never going to do it, but man, I wish they would, and man, would they kill it. I can't believe that they they don't find the value in having a Mario iPhone app or iPad app or whatever. I... Well, they've, they've
0: I totally agree, and I got like slammed in one interview I gave last year when I said like if I were them, I would give away Mario One for free on the iPhone with the hopes that like ten people would buy Mario Two or something because I think that so many people love it but maybe forget that they do and Nintendo reminding you for for a product that they've clearly already made money on would be a good idea. Uh, but it does seem like they're, they're they have plans to move into the mobile space. I don't know in what capacity that will be and with Nintendo it'll often be on their own terms. But they seem to have. Evolved a little bit from that from that mindset of like, well, if you want to play a mobile Nintendo game, get a 3ds. Right. Which you I wonder, have and I have, but but it's not what we have in our hands most of the time. It would be great if we had something on the iPhone.
2: I wonder if uh, this is very if this is a modern day Sega versus Nintendo thing because Sega has uh, certainly you know I can play Sonic One, Sonic Two, uh, new versions of Sonic on my iPhone or my iPad, and they look great and they play great and they're fun. Um, and it'd be great to see Mario join that world as well. And I, I mean, Mario Kart would play great on an iPhone. Mario Party would play great. I mean, so many of their titles would just work so great. I wonder if they've seen the success that Sony has or looked at the uh, Sega has, excuse me, and looked at the way those games have played and maybe that that's softened their stance a little bit. Yeah, I
0: think that's a part of it. They all, you know, they had a bad financial year last year as well and there was a lot of questions. And a lot of it, goes to their hardware um i love the wii u but it hasn't sold very well and it has a lot of marketing challenges and, and there's certain things i think that they messed up so i'm not shocked but if their goal is to sell console hardware like what better way than to get you and i and our friends to play these games for 99 cents or five dollars or whatever and think like oh man i wish is there a modern version of Mario? Oh, there is i should maybe get the wii u or there's
2: a new Absolutely. mario kart game yeah
0: um and a I mean, new generation
2: a new generation of, of, of players as well. I mean, there's got to be a, you know a ten year old kid who, who's never played uh, Mario Brothers on the eight bit, but would play the play it because everyone at his school is playing the on their iPhone, and next thing you know, he wants to get a Wii U because he's in love with the Mario games.
0: Yeah, and, and also in addition to really better uh, exploiting or taking advantage of the mobile platform, I think that. Nintendo has probably the best IPs outside of Disney slash Marvel nowadays, and it would really help that. Like, I think that them at least announcing that they were doing a Zelda series with Netflix was was a great move for them. I think they have so many great IPs that they should be doing more with, partly to appeal to that new generation, like you just said, and partly to appeal to people like you and I who are in our 30s and, and maybe forgot about how much we love Zelda. And sort of maybe even more mature content, which doesn't have to be that, it could still be in the Nintendo image. But, you know, I'd love, in the way that Marvel has done such a good job, like, you know, Daredevil was darker and the Avengers movies are, you know, more popcorny. like Nintendo, I would like to see them sort of have a more diverse offering with their IP, because they have great characters that could really do well.
2: Absolutely. Well, listen. Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation uh, is available in hardcover, um, paperback, Kindle, uh, iPhone, iBooks, all those places, Um, 70% five-star reviews on Amazon, um, and then 30% idiots uh, who maybe clicked wrong, (laughs) Uh, just uh, one of our favorite books we featured... um, what else? Uh, BlakeJHarris.com. Lay everything out that maybe I missed because I really want the listeners to connect with you and this. And we're gonna have to have you back when the documentary. We want to be part of this every step of the way. So line it all out for us, real quick.
0: <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me back. And you know, I, this book has most books come out and then they sell or don't sell and they kind of go away. But this is, this book has had legs, and it's because of people like you and other people who have like, really believed in it and helped spread the word and helped to be a platform to do that. So I really thank you for that. No problem. And uh, in terms of uh, pitching myself, I started that website, BlakeJHarris.com, just so I could put up the other articles that I wrote and some of my favorite photos or artifacts from the Council Wars process and excerpts and have it all in one place. So that's all there. Uh, my Twitter handle is BlakeJHarrisNYC, all one word. And uh, I love talking about the book um, and talking to people who hate the book or like the book. Um, And then otherwise I'm just going to go back to the laboratory and, and work on the documentary um, and try to get that done and then get the feature film going and find a new book to get started writing.
2: Uh, Do we have a vague timetable at all on when we might see the the movie?
0: Uh, Not yet. Uh, Joan and I are supposed to go to LA We're New York based, we're supposed to go to LA next week to meet with Seth and Evan and Uh, watch the latest version of the cut, and then hopefully talk about final steps to finishing up the post-production process. But uh, so hopefully in the next couple weeks, I'll have a much
2: clearer idea for you. Blake, thank you so much for being on again. Thank you for giving us a chance to feature the book again in the book club. We are going to have a copy of the book to give away. I'll let you know more about that when I get the books. Uh, But uh, Blake put me in in touch with the people at HarperCollins, and we're working that out. So we should have a copy or two to give away. And um, yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I look forward to chatting in the documentary sometime.
2: All right, I want to thank Blake Harris and John Wertheim for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can hear today's podcast and all of our podcasts on our website www.sports-casters.com You can also listen to them on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever uh, podcasts are available. We always say if you want to listen somewhere that our podcast is not available, uh, let us know. We'll try to fix that, although no one has ever let us know, so I'm starting to assume it's available where people want to listen.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Uh,
2: You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com Find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters at Don Lake Sports. And that's about it for plugs. Um, One last thing for me today. Um, I've always heard what a great show Louie is. Uh, And I was a huge fan of the show Lucky Louie for the one season that it lived on HBO. I really did think it was a hilarious, hilarious show. And I appreciated the kind of low budget look of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, poor acting at times. Uh, Jim Norton is in it and is hilarious.
1: Like uh, this guy that lives next door or something. Right? I think he's the
2: maintenance guy. The okay. building. Yeah, yeah. He's hilarious in it. And uh, I think last year when Louis premiered, I watched the first two episodes and I was just kind of like, eh. I don't know. I didn't love it. There was one where he went to like Seinfeld's house and
1: oh yeah, he went to do a benefit.
2: Yeah, and it was just and he kind of bombed. Really bizarre. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I finally sat down and I watched from episode one, uh, and by the time I had finished, what was on, what was the what was on Netflix? It was about six episodes into this last season, which just ended, which was a shorter season and. I enjoyed it. The interesting thing about the show, and maybe the thing I don't like about it, is sometimes I feel like Louis is talking to me through the show, Mm -hmm. uh, me being the general me, right? About how he doesn't want to be bothered by me. (laughs) You know, there's there's shows in there about where Louis is being a dick. Or he doesn't want to talk to people. And then he he tries to explain to the person why. And it's this nice guy explanation like, you know, I just am not comfortable like that. But I don't mean it to be – like he's very much – I appreciate the fact that he's very much using the platform to express something. Yeah, It's just that sometimes what he's expressing uh, turns me off to Louis. Makes me not want to like him.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I get the vibe that I'm necessarily being – preached at or anything and i'm not saying that you necessarily went that far and said that but uh i definitely get the vibe that he's doing whatever he wants on the show because absolutely
2: that yes
1: episodes will feel totally different and i think that
2: they're not always linked you know like no not at all see you could drop into season three episode six and it might be a very unique Pull it out of there. You don't need to know about anything before or after to enjoy that singular.
1: Right. I mean, there's common threads, kind of like how pathetic he is, is one of them. Uh, That episode with Seinfeld, he ends up taking this girl uh, back to his place. He ends up, like, knocking her out or something. It was just kind of the gag. Like, even when he's got a shirt thing, he ends up screwing it up. And there are
2: arcs occasionally, like, with this girl, Pamela, who I think was actually his wife in Lucky Louie as well. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's an arc about, you know, dating her or not. Um his daughters are in it quite a bit. Oh, there's an arc in the one season where he gets trapped on an elevator, or his name—oh, it's
1: like a dying lady or something. Yeah,
2: and then she has a niece who's from, and he kind of falls in love right, with her, and right. that's an arc. So there are arcs, and
1: I—and I... those are the closest things to making it, maybe like other comedies is like those little bits of arcs. But there's also shows that even like the part leading up to the first commercial won't have anything to do with the part after the commercial. Right.
2: And his stand up is a big part of it as well. Yeah. You know, he has stand up mixed in, other comedians stand up.
1: I I think it's I think it's really really smart, but I also think that that's the cool thing to say is that Louis is really really smart and It's, it's absolutely and
2: artsy. Yes, that's what it's I was going to say. Much it's like comedy is like art, art,
1: you know, and uh the episode uh where he goes overseas to talk to the troops and right. the duck is in his... His daughter put the duck yes. in his backpack thing. Like, I think that was just an amazing episode. I don't know if I laughed one time in the whole thing. Maybe... I think he at one point like has two ice cream cones or something and that's kind of funny. But like I just thought that was an amazing episode, but it, I don't know that it made me laugh at all. uh That's the art thing of it, though. It's
2: literally. maybe a sitcom, if you'd even call it that. uh It's maybe a sitcom that doesn't necessarily need to be funny to be good that day.
1: Right. There's one where he meets a girl who's really quirky. And like at one point you think she might jump off a roof. Like, and that's just about him meeting a weird girl. Like, I don't think there's a lot of laughs in that one. Either, right. But. And
2: my criticism of the show is absolutely not that it's not funny enough. I don't need just like this slapstick laughing right. thing or anything like that. Um, my criticism is just that in being himself and in producing art that at times is meant to represent his life as a comedian and how he interacts with the world around him, Louis himself can be a turnoff. He's a curmudgeon. Yes. Uh, I think when we had uh, Michael Woods on after the Pacquiao fight and I asked him, did you meet anyone cool there? And he said, yeah, Louis C.K., who has got a reputation for being a really – curmudgeonly and miserable guy but I went up to him and shook his hand and he was nice and it was cool so yeah. I was happy about that
1: yeah now do you prefer the episodes that are more funny and a, less artsy or uh no I wouldn't say that okay because I was going to say like I thought the first season was maybe more straightforward going for jokes and then I think he got into the artsier stuff but you said you like and I haven't seen this season yet it's still sitting on my DVD there right are
2: two there. episodes in this season that are as good as any 30-minute piece of television that's ever been created. Wow. The one stars, guest stars Michael Rapaport, Okay. Who plays a New York City cop. And the other one guest stars Jim Florentine who plays a comedian. Right. He doesn't play Jim Florentine but he plays a comedian. And these two episodes, I won't spoil them. As they're very fresh, I'll give people a chance to see them, you included. Yeah, they're incredible pieces of work. Yeah, I mean, catch up. and I don't know that either one was funny. Certainly, the police one was not a huge laugher. Um, but man, were they powerful and good.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, I I wouldn't argue that as someone. A- would say I think I really love the show despite not seeing this season yet I mean there's that there was the episode where he was dating a, a fat girl and she lectures him for like five minutes and that's how the show ends kind of about how you date a fat like yeah and, and like that to me it the waitress
2: she was like a waitress at one of the clubs yeah right? that's yeah. right
1: it, it wasn't it didn't make you laugh or anything like that but it did make you think kind of it's like oh that that's maybe not the most entertaining episode I've ever seen, but it was kind of like engrossing. It made you think about something that well, maybe you wouldn't. When I
2: finished Louie, I was kind of in a groove. Okay. Uh, you know, I was enjoying the hour each day that I was watching the two to three episodes. I had a, a part of the day carved out for that. And that part right, right. still existed. And I, I wanted to do something else. So I went to Mar- Mark Maron's show. It's just called Maron, right? It's, it's called, called Maron. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's a cool show. It's, it's basically based on his podcast. He uses his podcast the way Louie uses his com- comedy. Okay. Louis. You know, so like Louie will have a bit on stage and then that will transition into some story story. Right. right. So Marin will use a monologue he's giving in his garage. That's for the quote unquote podcast. Oh, really? And that will turn into part of the episode. That's cool. And he could come back to that in the middle. He might close it out with a little quick thing about the podcast. Um, celebrities are used sort of the same way that um, Louie might bump into this comedian at the cellar. Uh-huh. Well, this comedian might appear on Marin's show because he's on the podcast, you know? Okay. Um, and similarly, uh, Marin, as the main guy using television as art. Uh is telling stories about what he is uh a recovering addict uh, yeah. a guy who can't has had some disastrous marriages and has right. struggled with divorce uh an older guy who just can't shake twenty year old pussy just yet <laughs> you know um just uh a really interesting and it was really an- but but you don 't find him
1: curmudgeonly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because I was oh, going to say, no. I used to listen to his podcast, and I don't remember what made me stop. Maybe I was just listening to too many. No. And uh, his is good. It's really good, but the,
2: he is Almost dark. the theme of the show is, why are you so miserable, Marin? Okay. That's almost the theme through the whole show. Yeah, that's kind of his podcast. Is, right. uh, why are you so miserable? Okay. You know? And, um, man, these two comedians uh, found a way to turn TV into art through comedy. And I say overall, I mean, hats off to both of them. I sort of like Louis a little less than I like Marin. I should say this. That was a horrible way to say that. I sort of like Marin a little, a little bit more, more right. than I like Louis, but maybe it's because I have a bias as someone who does a podcast and I kind of like the way the podcast is used and sure, how it yeah. draws up some legitimacy for the medium. I mean, I'm not. Ashamed to say that sometimes I'm embarrassed to say to someone that, hey, I have a podcast. Right. Because you feel like a dickhead like everyone else who has a podcast, right? But Marin is like, yeah, I have a podcast, but it's awesome. Yeah, he's one of the And them people listen monsters. to it and it's cool. And I like to think, despite not being a monster by any means, that we can with some pride say, yeah, we have a podcast and yeah, we do it in our house. But no, it's not like everyone else's. Um, And maybe we were legitimized in some sense by uh, being one of Sports Illustrated's best sports podcasts in 2014. I don't know. Maybe, as I said when we responded to that, maybe I can just be a little arrogant like that. But I'd like to think that we do something that's a little bit better than whatever average is for the billion podcasts that are out there.
1: Oh, I would think so. I I think think, uh, whatever – numbers or whatever don't legitimize it i think is in the guests especially the repeat guests the guys that we have that come back i think are kind of our reason to keep doing it
2: so maybe i'm biased because of the podcast angle but man hats off to mark maron and louis ck for turning a sitcom into a piece of art on a weekly basis they're two really great shows and that kind of leads us into your one last thing. Yeah, I'm not prepared for this, but I. I'm we goofed give around go. last week. Uh, a e- uh, listener emailed us uh, to say
1: You wanted a take on a sport that wasn't hockey or football, right? Which
2: was a joke based on your Twitter name being at Thal Lake Sports. <laughs> right. And, um, so funny. Uh, we have a couple serious ones, and maybe we should have thought about this better. I should have thrown you a different one since I talked about TV V two, or maybe it makes complete sense since we're on this topic already, that this is the perfect time. But basically, I'll paraphrase. Um, his name is Billy, okay. which I like. I like when uh, an older guy is not afraid to still go by Billy. I feel like Billy fades away from the children.
1: Yeah, I get I get Donnie from a lot of people Yeah, still. I'm all right with that. I'm
2: all right with that, too. Uh, so Billy, who is from Buffalo, but oh, I don't right. think we know him. No, that's so, cool. Yeah, I just think it's cool that people in Buffalo... Supporting Buffalo.
1: We don't do a Buffalo podcast. As no, much as they talk about Buffalo people.
2: But maybe when uh, Sal or Mike,
1: or sure. Harrington
2: was on, or Mike Shope, you know, yeah. maybe he picked it up. But Billy from Buffalo says, uh, "Hey guys, I am actually getting surgery in a few weeks. Steve, I know you've had a few, um, but since Don is looking for some one last things, maybe he can suggest some shows one to five that he would say I should binge watch." While on break from surgery. My primary uh stipulation my primary source is Netflix. Okay. Uh but don't limit it to that. Actually when I pitched it to you earlier, I thought he said Netflix, Netflix. only, but he didn't. He said that's what he uses mostly, but you know, people find ways, right, on sure. the internet. So give this guy some shows. I talked about Marin and Louie. If he hasn't seen them, those could absolutely yeah, be on the list. Yeah. Uh, but this is for you. Give the guy some shows. He needs your knowledge. All right. My
1: top two favorite shows ever are, uh, and you're going to have to go to HBO Go, so if you have that available, uh, is The Sopranos, which will last you through your entire recovery, too. It's a nice long show. Yeah, six
2: six seasons or seven if yeah, you look at right. season sixes, too. Uh,
1: and then recent history, and I'm almost positive this is still on Netflix, is Breaking Bad is awesome if you haven't seen it, but I mean, I'm not exactly breaking new ground by saying that. Um, I love Arrested Development. If you're into like weird, quirky comedies, I'm not sure that the entire series is on there, but I I would assume it is. Yeah, because I mean, they I put out they, their own season, right, right? They put out their own season, and I believe they're going to do another one. Probably not by the time you're in surgery or anything, but uh, two more. Um, I love The Walking Dead. I don't. This is like McDavid Eichel are like one tier all of their own walking dead's nowhere near that tier but it is entertaining and i believe that is all on there and I don't, i'm not sure what else is on there uh if you're a comic book dork there's some good comic book
2: there's actually a whole nother one oh. last thing about don talking about dorky things oh, okay go ahead yeah what's uh a... i've heard
1: Daredevil's really
2: good the new series yeah i've heard uh, that too my... everyone keeps talking about this mad max movie too
1: Yeah, yeah. My friend Bob is not a comic book guy uh, at all, but he says Daredevil is just a good crime action show. I mean, the main villain in the Daredevil storyline is a guy named The Kingpin, who is essentially just like a godfather of crime. So I haven't seen that, but I've heard enough people say great things about it, so that's another one. Off the the top of my head, there's five for you.
2: Chances are, since this guy's a Netflix guy, he's already seen House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. Yeah, Orange. But both of those are... Alright, cool. And Orange is a new black is very chick friendly too.
1: It has a new season coming out, too. Yeah,
2: uh season three. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um so I'd throw those out too.
1: Absolutely. Alright, I
2: think we did it. I am waiting to I'm searching the hay. That's water and sunshine Wait for the moment